Kiddos in the congregation, I have a super important question for you. And it's good that we have more kiddos joining us. Listen up. I have a question for you guys. Which is better? One Oreo or two? 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 Yeah, two is the right answer, just so you know. Two is the right answer, right? Two, two Oreos is clearly better than one. Which is better? If I have one Oreo and I'm happy, or if I have two Oreos and I'm jealous of my sibling who has four, what do you think? Which is better to have one Oreo and be happy or two and be jealous? Which is better? Which is better if I have a whole package to myself? That's pretty good, right? A whole package of Oreos to myself and eat it and am lonely and sad that I have no friends. Or if I have a whole package and I share it with a friend and we eat it together, which is better? (laughs) Depends on whether you want friends or not, right? (laughs) The answer clearly is to have a package to share with a friend. You will eventually get lonely enough that you will wish you had friends. These are common sense answers, right? It's not hard to answer these questions. These are common sense and they can be answered with proverbial wisdom. That proverbial comes from Proverbs, right? Proverbs are short sayings that tell you this is good, but this is better. Or this is bad and this is good. They give us common sense wisdom on how to live in this world that God has created. But here's my question. If it is truly better, if I have one Oreo and am happy, than having two Oreos and being jealous of my friend, why then do I always long to have more Oreos than my friend? If I know that's better and it doesn't take a genius to answer that question, then why do I always choose what's not wise? If it's better... To enjoy my Oreos with a group of friends. Why am I most often with Jack and choosing the single package by myself? If I know what is good, why do I choose what is foolish? That's what the preacher is trying to wrestle with as he looks out at this world. He looks out at the world and says, why if we know what is good and we know what is better, why do we choose what is worse? If we know what is wise, why do we choose what is foolish? The answer that he wants us to see over and over again is that we were made for living in a garden. A garden where we had everything we needed. A garden where we lived in community with others and weren't jealous of what they had. And yet the reality is that because of sin, we don't live in that garden. We live in a wilderness. We live... In a place of scarcity, a place where it doesn't seem like there's enough, where it seems like having more than my neighbor is actually the better than being content with what I have. We live in the ruins of Eden because of the mess that sin has made. And the preacher's goal is to help us learn how to live wisely in that world, how to live wisely in what we call under the sun, right? The preacher says, all is hevel or frustratingly mysterious under the sun. How then do we live wisely the way he goes about doing this 
is by making observations of the world around him and by answering what he sees with Proverbs. He's going to do that in the text in our passage this morning. He's going to make observations. I see this. I see that. And he's going to answer those observations with Proverbs. Better is this than that. That's going to guide our walk through this text. Now, maybe when Brother Thad read this text or if you looked at it earlier this week, maybe it was confusing to you at first. And you're like, how do all these things fit together? Because they seem kind of random. Here's the structure that we're going to see as we go through. Look look with me at verse 4. We see this preacher start with, then I saw. Right? Then I saw. He's making an observation in verse 4. He's going to make another observation in verse 7. Again, I saw. Right? And he's going to make another observation, excuse me, in verse 15. I saw. Okay? So he's making these three observations and he's pairing them with a better statement. Notice in verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. Or in verse 9, two are better than one. Or in verse 13, where the better statement or the proverb actually precedes what he sees. Where he says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So we're going to see him make these I saw statements and make these better statements and put them together. And what he's doing is he's looking at the themes under the sun of work on the one hand and relationships on the other, and he's going to tie them together, and they're going to give us a three-dimensional picture of what's truly wrong, which is going to help us see what we need to make it truly right. So that's where we're going this morning. The first place I want us to look at is what the preacher looks at when he sees, he sees that we have work problems. He sees that we have work problems. Verse 4, he starts out. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and is striving after when. This is the first work problem he sees. He sees that what motivates our work is envy. I looked and I saw that all work, all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now certainly this is not always true. That's the nature of proverbial observations. This is a general principle. It's not that every single thing you do always springs from envy. But it's that envy often motivates you to work. We see this in our society. That's why the expression keeping up with the Joneses exists, right? This idea that I see what my neighbors have and I want it or I want something better. And so I work harder to get it so that now I can have what's better than my neighbors. This is the envy that leads us to want to maintain a certain lifestyle so that we have a certain perception among those who see us and know us. This is the kind of envy or jealousy that motivates our work to make us feel better than someone else. At its heart, this is works righteousness. This is the idea that if I do more, then I have or am better than someone else, and so I can look back at them and say, at least I'm not that bad. Or I can look at them and say... Look at how much more blessed I am. I saw, the preacher says, that envy pervades our working. Envy motivates our work. Not only that, though. He continues in verse 7. Again, I saw a vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, 
Yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is the picture of the lonely workaholic. The one who works and works and works and wants just a little bit more and thinks if they work just a little bit harder, they'll get just a little bit more. And maybe then that will satisfy. But they don't take time to stop and ask, who am I working all this for? What am I hoping to achieve by all this? This is the classic uh, John Rockefeller who, when asked, I mean, at the time peak of his wealth, he owned 1% of all of the wealth in the U.S. And he was asked by a reporter, how much is enough? And he answered, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. This is that kind of attitude or approach to life. This is what we've seen primarily in Ecclesiastes as we've come up to this point, right? This sense that we can find some kind of gain under the sun for all of our toil and all of our work. We are motivated by greediness for this gain To work, the preacher says. This is a problem. This is not good motivation for Christians to work. Then we have this weird story in verses 13 to 16 of this youth and this king. It's like, how does this connect with this theme? How is the preacher trying to draw our attention to this story? I believe what he's trying to show us here is that one of the motivators for work Not just envy, not just greed, but one of the motivators for work is pride or desire for recognition. This is the person who wants to be the perpetual employee of the month, not because they want to do a good job at their work, but because they like seeing their name on that little plaque. I'm going to read verses 13 to 16. Listen to this story. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom... He had been poor. So this is the ascent of that king from the prison to the throne. Rags to riches story where everybody wants to be, right? Then he saw, he says, all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth, or in the Hebrew says that second one, who was to stand in the king's place. So this idea that this king has achieved the peak of what you could call his ambition. You can't really get higher than king in a kingdom. And yet he's going to be replaced by this youth who is young and wise. And yet, verse 16, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, this youth. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after win. In other words, even though this youth now has arisen to the pinnacle of what you might call his work, he won't be remembered later. The success is fleeting. Many commentators think this little story is probably alluding to the story of Joseph in Genesis. If you think about the story of Joseph, right, sold into slavery by his brothers, then raised up into Potiphar's house as a servant, and then falsely accused and thrown in prison and forgotten, and then raised up to be a servant of the king, to where he was at the highest point in all the land. Able to bring his family in and rescue them from famine. And there was no end to all the people in the earth who came to Joseph in Egypt during that famine. And yet, in Exodus 1.8, we read that a new king arose over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Who had forgotten him. And what happens? All of Israel is enslaved. The success is fleeting. 
And the preacher says, part of our problem is that the way we work is working for this kind of recognition, this kind of prideful desire to find some kind of validation in the work we do. And it's not there. This is true that envy and greed and pride invade our work, whether we are rich or poor. This is true whether we have a job that the world considers very significant. This is true whether we have a job that the world considers menial. This is not just true, though, of what you might call our vocation. In other words, if you don't have a job where you go in and punch a clock and then get paid for it, you're not exempt from listening to this. This word is still for you, whether you're retired or whether you work in the home as a homemaker and a raiser of children. This is true regardless. Our work is not merely our job. In creation, God created us to work, not with the intent that you would someday have a nine to five. God created us to work in the sense of exercising dominion over the cult creation that he has made and cultivating that creation for his glory. For some of us, that means punching a clock and working nine to five. For others of us, that means homeschooling our children. For others of us, that means serving in various capacities. Whether you work vocationally or not, this is true that envy, greed, and pride can creep in. You may, as a parent, which is work, as parents know, you may look at other parents with envy and think, man, if my kids were just as well-behaved as my neighbor's kids. Of course, you only see them when they're well-behaved. But you may think that. And you may be motivated to work harder or differently at home to try to force your kids to be a certain way so that you can look at your neighbor and say, my kids are like that too. So this is true regardless, friends, of whether you work a vocational job or not. Envy, greed, and pride are present. Work itself is not the problem. Work itself is not the reason that the preacher sees these things under the sun because work is part of God's very good in creation. The problem goes deeper than that. The preacher is exposing the symptoms to help us see what's at the root. He's going to do that through what he sees here, but he also does that through presenting a positive image of what is better. That's what I want to look at next. What is better? The preacher lays out three better ways in this text. He says, first of all, in verses five to six, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and is striving after wind. The preacher first wants you to know that the answer to getting out of the envious rat race is not to just remove yourself altogether from work and be lazy, to fold your hands and to eat your flesh. Laziness is self-cannibalization. It is destructive and horrible. Proverbs has much to say about laziness. The answer is not some self-righteous removal from the rat race. The answer instead, the preacher says, is better, is a handful of quietness, which is better than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. What I believe he's saying here by handful of quietness, comparing it to two hands full of toil and striving after wind, is he's talking about contentment and the peace that comes with contentment. 
what Paul talks about when he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6, where he says godliness with contentment is great gain. Or when he's talking earlier in that letter to Timothy, and he says, pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He's not talking about seeking and striving for more and more and more and trying to be better than those around you. He's talking about being content with what God has given you. Being content with little or much, as he talks about in Philippians 4. Right? Learning the secret to be content. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. So the preacher says, first of all, that contentment, a handful of quiet, is better than envious toil, two hands full, and striving after wind. Secondly, he says, in verse 13, that to take counsel, to surround yourself with wisdom, is better than having a prideful self-sufficiency. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Notice the problem, why the king is old and foolish is because he no longer knows how to take advice. Instead, he has become prideful at the peak of his achievement and says, I don't need any of you guys. You guys are all under me. And the preacher is saying, no, better is the poor and wise youth. The implication of where he's wise is because he surrounds himself with wisdom, surrounds himself with many counselors. Better is contentment than envy. Better is counsel than pride. And where it all comes together is this middle one, which is probably the most famous part of this passage. If you've heard this passage before, this is probably the part you've heard. But that's better is two than one. Verse nine to verse 12. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. And has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now there's much speculation on what kind of analogy the preacher might be trying to draw. Is the... Two is better than one. Is that referring to being married? And then the threefold cord, is that, is that God being part of your marriage? It's certainly true that being married is good and that having God be central in your marriage is good. But I don't think that's the specificity that the preacher is talking about here. He's actually talking about much more literal sense of two being better than one, especially when you travel in the Middle East. When he's talking about falling into a pit, this is not a metaphorical pit. This is tar pits in the Middle East that you could fall into as you're traveling or an animal pit meant to trap animals and have them fall in so the people could come along and, and harvest them. But travelers would accidentally fall into these pits. And if you had no one there to help you, you were stuck and would starve to death. He's not talking about a metaphorical laying down. He's talking about the fact that the desert nights are cold. And in order to stay warm, you had to actually share your cloak and huddle together. He's not talking about metaphorical opponents being able to withstand someone. He's talking about bandits that were on the road that would waylay travelers. If you traveled alone, it was very dangerous. He's talking very practically about the fact that the world that he lives in shows that two are better than one. And that three is even better. 
If you had a party of three, man, you were really safe from the bandits. He's talking about that to try to show us in creation this common sense principle that two is better than one. Or that community is better than being independent and individualistic. He's trying to show us this and he's trying to show us that common sense itself teaches us this. Just like common sense teaches us that two Oreos is better than one. Common sense teaches us that two people together are better than being by yourself. Why then do we have these problems in work? If two are better than one, if being in community is better than striving alone in individualistic greed, why do we have envy in work where we seek to outdo our fellow employees? Why do we have greed where we neglect the community for the sake of trying to achieve more and more and more? Why do we have a prideful refusal of wise counsel? What brings us to look at someone who definitely has input that is valuable and say, you know what, I have no need of you. You're beneath me. The preacher here in showing us these problems is revealing that the heart of the problem is that we are alienated from God and one another by sin. The heart of the problem is that we are alienated from God and from one another by sin. And our work manifests that alienation. Look at how he says it. Verse 4. I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. The problem comes because of our disordered relationship with our neighbor. That we are envious of them when we ought not to be. We weren't created that way. That's wrong. That's a disorder. Or in verse 8. One person who has no other, either son or brother... The problem isn't that they work hard. The problem is that they are isolated and alone when they're not created to be that way. Or, for example, in verse 16. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Those who come along and are subjects of a good and wise king ought to rejoice in him. And yet they don't. Because we're alienated from one another by our sin. There's been brokenness that has come in because of sin that creates this disordered way of living. The better ways show us how we were actually created to be. We were created for contentment in community by God. God created us for community. Think back to Genesis. In Genesis 2.18... After God creates Adam and puts him in the garden and he starts naming the animals, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. So I'll make a helper fit for him. Right? Why does he say that? Why is it not good for man to be alone? It's not because all of us should seek to be married and all of us will be married. That's not it. It's not because Adam was lonely primarily. God created him and could have created him however he wanted. He could have created him to be independent, right? God, sin hadn't messed things up. It wasn't not good because sin had messed things up. It was not good because of how God had created Adam, which was to be in community. Why would God create Adam and Eve so that it was not good for them to be alone? 
Think about what God is like. When God says that he's going to create man, what does he say? He says, let us create man in our image. He says that because God is triune, isn't he? Creator God has always been, from eternity past, persons in relationship with one another. Father, Son, and Spirit. So when God creates Adam and Eve in his image, when he created you and me in his image, he created us in the image of a God who is in community with himself. That sounds lonely to us because we can't really comprehend three in one. But that's the truth. God is communal. Three in one. And he created us then to be in community as his image with one another. Which means a person by themselves is an incomplete picture of the image of God. So he created us to be in community with one another in the garden. Working together. Satisfied in his goodness. Working on expanding his good creation. His glory in the garden across all of creation. This was the work that God had given Adam and Eve and their offspring to do together for eternity. And yet, the fall disintegrated all of that. We're working through the New City Catechism right now as a family in addition to what we're doing in the church. And as we get to question 16, which we've already gotten to, but we'll get to eventually. The end of that says the result of sin is the disintegration of all creation. Now we think of disintegration like falling apart, but really that's, that's what's supposed to be together being broken apart. The disintegration of all of creation. The alienation of us from one another and from God and from the creation that he's created us to live in. That's what happens as a result of this sin, this destruction or disintegration, this alienation from God, one another, and God's purpose for our work. This manifests, as we see in Genesis, right away in Cain and Abel. What happens? Cain and Abel are doing the work God has given them to do. And they're bringing the sacrifices God has commanded. And Cain becomes jealous of the approval that Abel's sacrifice garners. He becomes envious of his neighbor. And what does he do? He murders him. What's the result of that murder? It's actually being cast away from the presence of the Lord. It's further isolation, further disintegration. Isolation from God, alienation from God and one another. Not only that, but that pattern continues all throughout the Old Testament. We see over and over the envy, the pride, the greed that drive even God's people. Because sin has alienated them from one another and from God. The result that we live out today is that we believe that we need this thing to be happy or that thing to be happy or this circumstance to be happy. And we look at our neighbor and instead of saying we're joyfully pursuing God's good together, we say you're standing in the way of me getting that. This is sadly manifested often in the ways that dads neglect family for the sake of work. Right? In order to be happy, in order to be complete, I need either to make a certain amount or to have a certain amount of recognition at work. And my family is getting in the way of that. And so, you know what? I need this more than I need them. That's not right, friends. That's not right. That's a fallenness that manifests because of this brokenness of sin. We see this manifested today when 
blessings come to those in the church. And instead of rejoicing with them, we have this little spark of, I wish it were me. We have this little itch to try to show what God has given us to be able to one-up them. It ought not be so. We are alienated from one another. So the question is, how do human beings who are alienated from one another, alienated from God, how, friends, do we get back to right relationships? How can this be fixed? How can these ruins of Eden be rebuilt? The answer, of course, is that we need someone to reconcile us. That's always the answer when there's brokenness, isn't there? You need somebody to reconcile you. And God has provided a way. He's provided a way in King Jesus who reconciles all things to himself. The good news is that God, since the fall, has been working on his plan of bringing his people into reconciliation. Of repairing this brokenness that we see manifested all the time in our work and in our relationships. He started out doing it with his people when he called Abraham. And he called Isaac and he called Jacob and he made them a people and he gave them sacrifices to make them be in a right relationship temporarily with him to remove some of the alienation from him to enable them to live in his presence. He gave them sacrifices and he gave them commandments at the center of all of Israel's commandments are the greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord, your God. With all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. All of the Mosaic commandments are surrounded by the theme of love God and love neighbor. God is working this reconciliation through these rules for his people. But it's only a temporary reconciliation, right? It doesn't last. That's why the sacrifices need to keep happening. That's why the laws keep being broken. That's why judgment keeps happening. That's why God keeps sending his people out into exile. Because it's not permanent. It's not actually fixing the heart problem of reconciliation. Instead, at the proper time, God provides a greater way. God sends his son into the wilderness of the ruins of Eden. To himself do the work that we were supposed to do originally. God sends his son into the world to perfectly embody love of God and love of neighbor. We read in the Gospels of Jesus' life, and he perfectly shows us what it looks like to love God, his Father. And he perfectly shows us what it looks like to love neighbor, especially the weak and the unlovely, especially his enemies. He shows us what that looks like over and over and over. But he's not just an example for us to follow. He actually takes... On himself, the penalty that we deserve for all of our envy, all of our pride, all of our greed, all of the alienation from our neighbor. He takes that penalty on himself because what does he do? He goes to the cross. But how does he go there? He goes there abandoned by his disciples. And eventually, somehow at the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somehow, even for a time forsaken by his father. He experiences the alienation that we ought to endure forever in our place at the cross. And by doing that, what does he do? He reconciles us with his father. 
and he reconciles us to one another. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians when he talks about this ministry of reconciliation that we have been given. He says this in verse chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ, through the Son, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, forgiving us for what we deserved, not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting to us then the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. This is the work that God is doing through his son Jesus. Reconciling us to himself. And then making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. Not only that, but he is making a new people. Paul hits on this very strongly in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this in chapter 2 verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. He's talking about Jew and Gentile, mortal enemies. Made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility as we're reconciled to God. And as we're reconciled to one another through the blood of Christ, through his work on the cross, we are made into one new people. Notice in both of these texts, Christ's work in reconciling us is not one, but more than one. It's not by himself. It's in concert with the Father and the Holy Spirit, working together to bring reconciliation. And our response, what flows out of that reconciliation, is not individualistic. It's not one. Two is better than one. It's building us into a new people together. Jew and Gentile, bringing us back to community that we were created to live out in the garden. This is what God is doing in Christ Jesus. He is working as a triune God, persons in community, to bring us back together as a community. As the new covenant community then, what do we do? We get to live out the better that the preacher shows us here in Ecclesiastes. We get to live out the betterness of godliness with contentment. We get to live out the betterness of being able to surround ourselves with wise counsel. We get to live out the betterness of walking together through the desert instead of walking by ourselves and falling into the pit. We get to live out the betterness because we have been reconciled. We have work to do, friends, as this new covenant community, as the church, that we cannot do alone. We have been given a mission to make disciples of all nations. What does Jesus do when he sends out his disciples? He sends them out two by two in Mark 6, 7. Because two is better than one. We're created to work this in community. 
What does the author of Hebrews call us to do in chapter 10? Not neglect meeting together, but instead encourage and exhort and stir one another up to love and good works. You can't do that by yourself. We are called to exercise discipline in Matthew 18. And what does God's law call for? The evidence of two or three witnesses. We cannot even exercise discipline by ourselves. We can't, certainly, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, as Paul tells us in Galatians 6.1, by ourselves, can we? We are called to do this together and in community. When we are reconciled to God and to one another and to our God's purpose in the work that he has given us to do, then we will not look with envy at our neighbor, right? If we are satisfied in Christ, content in all he is and has done for us, when blessings come on our neighbor, what will our response be? Rejoicing. We will be happy that they have two Oreos and we only have one. We will be grateful for what we have and we will be happy for them. When we are reconciled to God, we will not leave others behind in greedy pursuit of our own goals, will we? Because we will look at others as created in the image of God. And we will know that godliness in us and in them is a group project and we want to work together. And so we will slow down and we will bring them along. Or we will step aside from our own selfish pursuit of our goals And seek the good of the community. This is what it looks like to live as reconciled people. This is what God calls us to be. And when we live like this. When we live like this. It will be a compelling testimony. To Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus can create that kind of community. Right? Only Jesus can cause us to live that way with one another. Because outside of Christ. We're all still broken and alienated from God and one another. And we'll all still live with envy and pride and greed. But in Christ, we will have this kind of better covenant community. And we'll grow in godliness. And our corporate witness will show the goodness of Christ. We'll be like charcoal piled up together in the grill. I'm probably going to grill later this afternoon. We're going to have some brats. And when I do, I'm not going to put just one briquette in there, right? If I do that, I could hold a match to it for a long time and I'll burn my fingers before it starts up. But when I get a few few briquettes going and then I pile the rest on top, what's going to happen? It's going to create this beautiful fire that I can then cook these delicious brats on and we can enjoy the fruits. That's what we're called to do and be as a covenant community. We're called to build the embers of one another and we can only do it if we're reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are intimately aware as your people that you so often call us to do and be things that we cannot do and be on our own. We can hear this and talk about it all we want, Lord. But we know that it's only your spirit at work through the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts that will make this change. And so, God, we ask you to do what only you can do. We thank you that you have indeed reconciled us to yourself and one another through Christ. We ask you to help us live out that reconciliation as a community that embodies the betterness of being in community. 
because you have created us to be that way. So would you help us? We pray. Would you build our unity as your people even now as we move into your table?